The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So something that's always kind of been interesting to me as I've, you know, just read the Bible and grown with the Lord is, is something that uh, drastically changed in the disciples. Like, if you look at these guys in the Gospels, you know, they, uh, they, you know, they did about you, what you, about, they did about what you would expect. You know, they, they seemed to struggle to really understand what Jesus was saying a lot of times. They, they were um, flaky at times, offensive at times. Um, Jesus knew that they were going to ultimately be floundering when he went to the cross. He was very aware of this. He was trying to prep them for it. He was trying to prime the pump um, to get them prepared for, for the cross and he even told them in Matthew 26, 31, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. I mean, Jesus was very aware of the fact that he was going to go to the cross and when he went to the cross, his disciples would be extremely confused and let down and disoriented, not understanding well, you fast forward to the book of Acts, which is the second book written by Luke, and it's crazy who these guys become. I mean, they, they really go from being sort of this, this confused and floundering rabble of, of disciples to the book of Acts. They're like a, a church-planting machine. I mean, these guys, uh, they just literally, the gospel is profoundly spoken through them. You see powder, uh, Peter, powder, Peter, Peter, powder. You see Peter preaching this, this profound sermon right in the beginning of the book of Acts, and thousands of people come to know the gospel. And then you see people like Stephen, just this deacon, this, this guy who, who was um, really just called to just be serving and, and waiting tables, and all of a sudden he's thrown into a situation where he has an opportunity to testify, and he just preaches this profound sermon. I mean, these guys were like night and day. They, they went from being entirely kind of confused and barely holding on to being disciples of Christ by a shoestring to being just these incredibly... Uh, powerful church planning, gospel preaching, men and women. What happened there? And what, was, what was it that, that changed? That's kind of the question I want to ask this morning, because in our story, uh, we actually see a, a situation where the disciples are floundering after the cross, and they don't really know what to do with it. Um, and we see a change, even just in this little portion of scripture we're going to look at, between these guys and the beginning of this portion, and at the end. Like, something drastically happens and changes in these guys. Now, the world, especially the Western world that we, we live in, they would really like us to think, I hear this all the time, that what created Christianity was simply faith in general. Faith in faith. Belief in belief. Belief for belief's sake. You know, something that you probably will find as you engage, hopefully, with non-Christians, especially in our culture, uh, is that they have no problem with faith. Like, faith is cool. Faith is great. Um, I, was, I took an, uh, an agnostic guy uh, in Grants Pass to lunch just to try to share the gospel with him. It was a really cool opportunity. And, and it was funny. I was telling him my story, my testimony, and, and everything. And, and it was so funny because he just kept nodding his head. And this guy's an agnostic. And he's like, ah, that's just so cool, man. I'm just so glad that you have faith. Like, faith is awesome. Faith, faith, faith. And I'm like, this guy's an agnostic. And he's excited for me that I have faith. It was kind of a light bulb for me. I realized, you know, it's the funny thing is, is that non-Christians have no problem with faith. The problem they have is when you put your faith in an absolute, or when you say that your faith is actually in something, then it becomes offensive. Now, 
what was it that changed these disciples? I would suggest to you that it wasn't just faith for the sake of faith. I don't think these guys lost their heads and went to the cross and, 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 and just like Christ and were persecuted and ultimately martyred just because of good feelings. Like our postmodern culture wants us to think Jesus was just all about good feelings. And I don't think that that's ultimately what made these guys change. It was just warm, fuzzy, faith, spiritual feelings. The majority of sane and rational people in the world, now there, there's always a few people that are a little different, but the majority of sane and rational human beings in the world do radical things all the time because they, not because they just feel like it, but because of a reality that they are reacting to. What would cause thousands of men, ages 16, 17, 18, whatever, to sign up to go storm Normandy Beach knowing that there was more than half of a percent of a, more, more than 50% of a chance that they were going to lose their life? What would cause all of these thousands of soldiers to storm the beach and, and go to war and volunteer for such a thing? Was it just a feeling that they had? Or was it a reality? Was it a substance that if they did not do that, that Hitler and the Nazis and the Japanese would take over the world, would invade our homeland? I mean, these guys were responding to a reality. They were rational men. They weren't just caught up in a moment. They knew if they didn't go to war, we would lose our country. We would lose our freedom. And they responded to it, right? The disciples are no different. They're responding to a reality. They're giving their lives away because they've seen something, and they've seen something that's more real than anything they've ever seen before. I was watching an interesting documentary the other day called Free Solo. Have any of you guys seen that? It's not about Han Solo if you're a Star Wars fan. Nothing to do with him at all. Uh, it's actually about this guy that rock climbs without a rope. This is him right there. Uh, no rope, okay? He is uh, the first one, I believe, to climb El Capitan in Yosemite without a rope. And the whole documentary is about him doing it, basically, the leading up to it and all this kind of things. And this is a pretty rational guy. Like, he's not crazy. He's actually extremely normal. Uh, You think a guy, like, you look at it, you're like, this guy's got to be crazy, right? I mean, you would never think to do this. So at what point in the documentary he goes in and he gets a CAT scan? Because he wants to figure out, like, what is wrong with me? Like, why do I, why, 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 why am I doing this, you know? And they, they look, examine his brain, and they realize that he actually has a, higher need for uh, intense situations to make him feel than normal people. Like, like, he can't just sit and watch, you know, Gladiator or something and all of a sudden feel like, oh, that was fun. Like, he's just bored. He's like, no, I want to go climb a mountain without a rope. That sounds like fun, right? And he makes this comment in the document. It was so profound. He says, the reason I do this is because it's the only time that I really feel like I'm alive. Now, this guy's not crazy. You, someone might think he is, but he's not. He's not crazy. The reason he does that is because he wants to feel something really real. And he's so, that's so real to him, the feeling that he's after, and that is so real to him that he's willing to risk his life in order just to get that feeling. Now, we won't get into the, whether that's smart or right or wrong or whatever. My point is simply this, that people, rational-minded people, do crazy things all the time, not because they're crazy, but because they've seen a reality or experienced a reality and they want to respond to it or need to respond to it. The disciples weren't crazy. In fact, they were quite rational. And we'll see that in our text. They responded to reality. Their faith was not in faith. Their faith was in an object. Faith was in something they've seen. So I want to ask that question. What, what made the disciples change? What was it? And is that something that we can access this morning? Is that something that can change 
us. So let's dive right in. We're in Luke 24, verse 13. And before we, we get into it, let me set the stage for what's going on here. Okay? Jesus has gone to the cross. His disciples have scattered, as I said, and they're real confused. They don't understand what's going on. This guy was supposed to be the deliverer. He was supposed to be the one that was going to establish Israel again, the Davidic warrior general king that the Old Testament talked about, and now he's dead. They've just been in Passover, or they've been in Jerusalem for Passover for a week because it's a pilgrimage feast, and now it's time to go home. So with their tail between their legs, with their heads down with disappointment and gloom, they, they begin the journey, these two disciples of Christ, back to their home in a little town called Emmaus. And as they're walking, something crazy happens. Let's just tune in in verse 13, chapter 24. So that very day, which is Sunday, the same day that Jesus uh, was seen, that the tomb, I'm sorry, that the tomb was empty, right? The very day, two of them, the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now, what are all these things that had happened? Let me just get you up to speed. It wasn't just the cross. I mean, the, the, the events that they just came out of were intense. Jesus came rolling into town on Sunday, the triumphal entry and all of the town basically um, responded to his entrance and were laying palm branches and yelling Hosanna. It was this big, crazy scene. Um, he goes into the temple and ultimately walks back out, goes to Bethany for the night, comes back in the next morning and cleanses the temple, which is an, an intense scene. You can imagine. He's flipping over tables, drives out the money changers, sets up shop in the temple and begins preaching for a few days. And just all of these people are coming out to hear Jesus preach in the temple. Then, Thursday night, he's arrested. He's tried in the middle of the night at the house of Caiaphas, so this illegal trial. Uh, ultimately, in the morning, brought to Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate, where Pilate ultimately has him sent to be executed by the cross. He's dead for three days. Three days was the legal amount that someone had to be considered dead in order for them to legally say, you're done, gone. Before that time, you're only mostly dead. <laughs> Princess Bride, any, anybody? Okay, thank you. He's only mostly dead. Okay. Uh, so these are the things that they're talking about. Now, as they're going to Emmaus, they're just, they're just like debriefing which has happened. Like, that was the craziest week ever. We thought this guy was the Messiah. We've been following him around for three years, and now he's gone. What in the world? I mean, they're just processing. What was this? What was this for a seven-mile walk? And as they're walking, this guy just walks up. Okay, this guy walks up, and, and they don't know who he is. Look at verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, we, as the audience, we know it's Jesus, but these guys don't. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him, it says. Now, when it says their eyes were kept, that's a divine passive. That means that Jesus was withholding their eyes from seeing who he was. This isn't like a hardness of heart. This isn't like, you know, they just didn't recognize him. This is like Jesus is either changing his physical identity somehow or he's just blocking them. Okay, he is God. Okay? He's blocking them from understanding who he is. And Jesus, I just love this. This is so interesting. He just walks up and he kind of merges paths with them and he starts talking to them and he says, hey guys, what's up? What are we talking about? Now, notice that he's coming from Jerusalem. He's coming from Jerusalem. He, he obviously was returning back as well, just like them. In verse 17, 
He said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? It's kind of a formal way of saying, hey guys, what you talking about? <laughs> Try that, walk up to France. What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And like, uh, you could have just said, what are you guys talking about? Um, they stood still looking sad. And it's interesting that Luke notes that. I mean, Jesus asks what they're talking about, and Luke immediately wants us to see their disposition. These guys are bummed. This isn't just like, oh, we're a little, we're a little sad today. No, these guys are wrecked. Everything that they thought was going to happen, seemingly, is not going to happen now. Their Messiah, who they thought was a Messiah, is now dead. Now, notice how Jesus interacts with them like a good teacher. He doesn't just come in and say, hey, guys, let me explain what's going on. He wants to elicit from them their thinking, their thought process, so that he can, like a good teacher, he can shape the way that they're thinking. So he asks them, hey, guys, tell me what you're talking about and tell me your interpretation. Verse 18, then one of them named Cleopas answered him. And this is funny. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these, in these days? Like, you, you're coming the same direction as us, man. Like, how did you not know? What that tells us is it tells us that Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem was really, really a big deal. Like, it wasn't just some little thing that happened within some Jews over on the side of Jerusalem. I mean, we're talking millions of people knew what was going on. This was a big deal. You couldn't have missed the triumphal procession. And these guys are like, were you taking a nap all week? I mean, were you, are you under a rock? Like, how did you miss what just happened? Jesus kind of plays coy, right? Ironically, the funny thing is Jesus is the only one that actually knows what just happened. He's the only one that actually knows, and, and they're giving him kind of a snarky response of like, yeah, what are you, were, you, were you sleeping? What's going on here? Verse 19. And he said to them, what things? Again, trying to elicit their response. Said to them concerning, they respond, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was, now note this, a prophet Mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. So this is super interesting. This is one of the only places in the Gospels where we actually get to see what the disciples thought was going on after the crucifixion. Their definition of who Jesus was after he died. Now notice what they don't say. They don't say, Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord. They don't say Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Son of Man, or even the Messiah. At this point, they see Jesus as nothing more than what? A prophet. Why do they think that? Because he's dead. In order for him to be the Son of Man, to be the Messiah, to be the Son of God, to be Kyrios, Lord, he must not be dead. And because he is dead, he is now ranked and filed over here to the side with great men like Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Isaiah. Just another voice that God sent to his people and the people killed the voice. I mean, this is John the Baptist. He's just right in line with a bunch of other prophets. So it's actually interesting to note that even though these guys are devoted disciples, their mindset is actually quite secular when it comes to the person of Christ. They've basically filed him as just a really insightful, intriguing prophet. I don't know about you guys, but I, I find a lot of non-Christians that say the same things about Jesus. Yeah, he was, he was really profound. I think he was a prophet. I mean, the Muslims think he was a prophet. 
I mean, universalism says that, you know, Jesus was one of many of the expressions of God and in his voice. And, and you'll have no problem finding somebody in this culture that says Jesus was a good man or a prophet. Okay, this is a very secular mindset. Even Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, who was not a Christian, by the way, this is what he said about Jesus. He said he was a wise man and a worker of remarkable feats. Being impressed by Jesus does not make you a Christian. You'll find people that are impressed, and it's really tricky when you're evangelizing because you're trying to tell someone that Jesus is the only way, and, and they're like, yeah, Jesus is awesome. Like, no, 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 you don't understand. He's not just a prophet. There's something more happening here. But if he's dead, then he's not Messiah. That's the reality, okay? Verse 21, they say this, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. So we see now why they're bummed. They're bummed because they had hoped that this was going to be the one to redeem Israel, and now he's dead, legally dead, three days all the way. They're disappointed. Why are they disappointed? Well, they're disappointed partially because they don't have a messianic theology of a suffering Messiah. Let me say that again. They do not have, the Jews in the first century do not have a messianic theology of a suffering Messiah. Not because it's not there, just because they didn't see it. They just completely missed it. Also, they saw their redemptive need as political, not spiritual. Isn't that so, the prosperity gospel, by the way? I mean, people miss the gospel all the time because they think Jesus exists to give them a better car, to give them health, wealth, and prosperity. These guys missed the Messiah because they thought the Messiah was coming to make their life awesome instead of the Messiah coming to pay for their sins and glorify God. But also, I want you to notice that they're right to be bummed out. Can we just give them that? These guys are right to be disappointed because we don't see a dead Messiah in the Old Testament. If he's dead, then he's not the Messiah, and they're right in saying that. Now, to make matters worse, his body's gone. Check out verse 22. They say, moreover, to make things more complicated, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now, I don't know if you can find or see the dripping cynicism in that sentence. These guys are not convinced by the report of these women. Some of these who were with, verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, listen, but him they did not see. So are they convinced that his body's missing? Yeah. Are they convinced that he's resurrected? No. Who cares if his body's missing? That doesn't mean anything. What matters is did we see him? Now what I want you to see here is that these are completely rational men. I'm assuming they're men, I don't know. One of them is at least a man. But these two on, on, the, on the road to Emmaus, they're completely rational. They're, they're level-headed. Being skeptical is part of being rational. I mean, you've you, you got to think through this stuff. And these guys are not wrong to be skeptical. Yeah, some of the women kind of said that this body was missing and then an angel showed up and I don't know. We'll see. Jury's still out. This is what James Edwards, the commentator, says on this. He says, Evidence for the empty tomb is thus considerable yet still inconclusive on the one thing that matters, him they did not see. 
That's all that matters. Did you see the risen Lord? If he's not risen, then I don't really care. Now, just a side application on that, okay, people ultimately are going to need more than just evidence. They need to experience the risen Christ. They need to experience. I mean, you can throw resurrection evidence at people all day long, case for Christ and all this. I mean, it's really good, but until someone experiences Christ like Paul did, where Jesus is standing in front of him and saying, why are you killing my people? then a lot of times nothing's going to change. But I want you to see that these disciples were not simply people that were just pushovers. They were skeptical. They were rational. Even with the report that Jesus was risen, according to the angels, they were still skeptical. In verse 25, now this is where it gets really cool, okay? He said to them, this is Jesus responding, he says, Oh, foolish ones, the Greek in that is really, it's like a dullness. You're dull. <laughs> like, you're, you're missing the ability to hear something here. And then he calls them slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, he doesn't accuse them of being slow to believe the, the, the report of the women. You notice that? He doesn't say, you guys are so thick. Just believe what these women told you. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, you are slow to believe what? all that the scriptures, the prophets, have spoken. God already told you this was going to happen. In the Bible, you just completely missed it. Why did you miss it? Because you're dull of hearing, because you're slow of heart. Now, there is this ability in human beings, I don't know if you have experienced this, but to learn how to tune out frequencies. Have you ever, I've learned how to do that with my kids, and it's kind of a problem. Like, my, my wife will be like, hey, do you not hear this right now? I'm like, huh? I was just, th- I'm sorry, what? You know, like, it's, I've gotten really good at it, and it's, it's a problem, especially when you're in a restaurant, and people are looking at you like, dude, get your kids under, and you're like, what's going on? I don't know what, I'm just eating my omelet, you know? Like, you, you just can, you can tune out things over time. And, and in reality, it wasn't that the, that the suffering Messiah wasn't in the scriptures. It's that these guys got so good at tuning it out, I don't know that they were intentionally tuning it out. Here's what I think. They were so tuned in to the idea of a a governmental, general, political, Davidic Messiah that they couldn't see the blatant, obvious scriptures that said there was a suffering Messiah as well. Or maybe they're just different guys. Isaiah 53, come on. By his stripes we are healed like a lamb led to the slaughter. I mean, you can't admit Genesis 3 the serpent would bruise the heel of the one who would cry. How do you miss a suffering servant? Well, they did. They just tuned it out. It wasn't there. It wasn't in their theology at all. Completely missed it. And Jesus' accusation is not, oh, you guys, you just can't believe these women. His thing is you didn't read the Bible. And if you read it, you read it completely tuning out the truth. That's his thing. He says that they are slow of heart. Not slow of head. Not slow of mind. Not slow of reason. Slow of heart. It's not that they're incapable It's not that they're not educated enough. Their heart is not willing to see the truth. That's the reality. Their heart is slow to hear. That's why Paul in Ephesians, he prays for the Ephesians. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, listen to this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I like uh, Boya, he calls it cardioptics. It's the eyes of your heart. It's just the way of seeing that's beyond the physical. Jesus says you need to see with your heart. You need to see with your heart. And Paul prays that for the Ephesians. 26. 
And here's Jesus' response still. He says, was it not necessary? Note that word necessary. We're going to come back to that. Was it not necessary that the Christ, Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, now this is so cool. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. In case you're wondering, that's the whole Old Testament. Moses is the first five books, all the prophets, everything after. He's from all of the Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus, and they still don't know who he is. He goes, hey, you guys, you're super dull. <laughs> Let me tell you what you've been missing for hundreds of years. And then he starts in Genesis, and he begins to exposit the thread of the suffering servant all the way through the Old Testament. We'll come back to that in a minute. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. The word interpreted there that we, says uh, Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them. We get our word, ex, or we get our word uh, hermeneutics from that. It's the science of interpretation. We do hermeneutics as Christians, which is to, to, to have a certain way of studying the Bible and seeing Christ in it, because Jesus did hermeneutics. Oh, Sam, that's dry, that's seminary. No, 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 no. Jesus did hermeneutics. He pulled out the Old Testament, and he taught it. That's why we do this here, by the way. In case you're new and you're wondering, why, why does these guys stand up there for an hour? It's so boring. Okay, because we believe that this thing is worth expositing. And when I say exposit, I mean exposing, unleashing, releasing what's here. Not imposing my own thoughts on it, but letting it out to you guys. I just want you to see what's here. I don't care what I think. I want you to see what's here so that you go home and your faith is in it, right? This is where evangelicals get the idea that the Old Testament is about Christ. We didn't just make that up. And this is why it matters, by the way, when people try to tell you that we don't need the Old Testament as evangelicals anymore. Let's just throw that out. It's outdated. No. Jesus preached the Bible, which at that time was the Old Testament. <laughs> All of it. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. This is kind of funny. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening. And the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. So Jesus is kind of, he's fooling with them a little bit. He's like, well, see you guys later. And I'm going on to the next town. It's almost dark. And they're like, hey, come with, just come have dinner with us. You know, like come, come have a meal. He obliges. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Now that's really weird, by the way, because this is not Jesus's house. And they don't know that this is Jesus. This is just some dude, some hitchhiker, some guy that they, they picked up and brought him home for dinner. He walks up, opens their fridge, grabs the omelet and eggs and starts making an omelet. Like he grabs bread and starts feeding with their bread. He's like, hey, you want a meal? <laughs> like, let me go make some food. That's totally rude by any standards, let alone first century uh, Jewish standards, okay? Some commentators think the reason he did that was because um, they were starving from their trip and the last thing on their mind was food because they had just heard the most incredible sermon they'd ever heard in their life that Jesus, the word himself, the expositor of expositors, preached Christ in the Old Testament and they were so enraptured by what he was saying, the last thing they wanted to do was eat. So Jesus is like, hey, uh, here's a sandwich. <laughs> You're getting kind of pale, you know. You need, to, you need to eat some food, guys. Makes sense to me. 31. Now, it was in that moment, note this, and we'll talk, to it, talk about it later. It was in that moment that their eyes, verse 31, were opened, and they recognized him. <laughs> and immediately, 
He vanished from their sight. That's just so Jesus, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, it's me, later. You know, it's like, that's so boss. They said to each other, but did people say boss? Is that not, I haven't never said that word before. I don't know why it just came out. So boss. Uh, they said to each other, and this is cool, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And wasn't it incredible when he was preaching? It was just like our hearts were burning. Now notice this. The same hearts that Jesus just said were dull are now on fire. Isn't it the driest tinder that burns the brightest? I mean, these guys were just so dull. And then now the scripture hits it and they're on fire. Their hearts are burning. Now, I wanted you to know earlier that it's dark Okay, they just barely got there before dark. And what's the first thing they do? Verse 33. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, seven miles back in the dark. You just don't do that. You just don't. It's, it's dangerous. You're going to get robbed. These guys should wait till the next day. They can't wait till the next day. Why? Because they've just seen the risen Lord. And they've got to get back to Jerusalem and tell these guys. So they probably sprint, pick up their robes and sprint. Forget the danger. We're going to go proclaim this truth. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. What a story to tell. They are, (laughs) these guys are absolutely willing to do whatever it takes to proclaim what they've just seen. Now, isn't that a cool story, by the way? I mean, it's a true story. It's incredible. It's only in Luke. I think it's one of the coolest accounts of the resurrection. Now, we asked the question in the beginning, so what do we do with this? What was it in, the, in this story that made these disciples flip from being these dry, uh, dead-hearted, dull-minded, uh, floundering, bummed, sad disciples who were going home with their tail between their legs to becoming these evangelists that are running back to Jerusalem to proclaim the news of the risen Lord? Like, what changed in that moment? What was it? What was the catalyst that, that, that catapulted these guys into a passionate uh, state of belief. Now, I would suggest to you guys four things, okay, four things, and we're going to look back at a couple points in this story, and I want you just to see four things, four activating catalysts in this story that, that really changed these guys, that made them into evangelists. The first one is this, if you want to jot them down. The first one is the activating power of the scriptures, And that's probably the most obvious one in the text, but let's take a look at it. The the activating power of the scriptures. What did they say after Jesus exposits the entire Old Testament? They say, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the scripture? The scriptures have the power to save. Now, I want you to notice this. Jesus did not want their roots to be grounded in their experience, although that is important. He wanted these guys to be sent off knowing that he went to the cross and was resurrected because the scripture said that he would. It's the Bible. It's, it's awesome. No. Um, <laughs> I'm like, press through it, Sam. Don't get distracted. Um, he wants these guys to be rooted in the scriptures, not in their experience. Does, does that make sense? He says, I, I want you to see that the fact that Jesus died and rose was something God knew 
from before time. Something that God had planned. And your roots need to be in this this truth of my word. How many people, listen, how many people have come to know Christ because of nothing more than the simplicity of God's word? The simplicity of God's word. I went through uh, Dutch Bros this morning um, and my bro, Broista, there was like talking to me and he, he's like, what are you doing? It's like four, five in the morning, like where are you going? And I'm like, I'm going to preach a sermon at my church and he's like, oh cool, you know? And he's like, what, uh, what, you know, what, what are you preaching on? And I'm like, oh, okay. So, well, there's a story and I'm just like kind of hitting gospel points here and there. It's kind of cool, you know? And he's like, oh, cool, cool. There was nobody behind me so we're just kind of talking and, and uh, he's like, what's your favorite book of the Bible? I'm like, Ephesians, you know, gospel points. I'm like, yeah, because it's about identity and stuff. And, and, and it's, oh, cool. And I'm like, what about you? He's like, oh, I like, I like Job. And I'm like, cool, right on, you know. And then we're just talking about the Bible. I'm like, this guy's got to be a Christian. Like, there's just no, you know. So I'm like, so where do you go to church, man? He's like, oh, I'm, I'm not religious. He's like, I just think the Bible's cool. I just read it. <laughs> I was like, sweet, man. I'm like, what's your name? He's all Daniel. I'm like, read that book. Okay, <laughs> seriously. Like, it's crazy, you know. Okay, you know. I'm driving away and I'm literally thinking as I'm sipping on my Americano, I'm thinking, that guy's going to get saved. Like, there's no way that guy's not going to get saved because he's reading the Bible. I mean, I could have been like, dude, you got to watch this YouTube video because the Bible's too confusing, man. I mean, let me get you the message translation because I just don't want you to get lost. No, he's reading the Bible. He's going to get saved. I just believe in that because he's reading the gospel. Um, I just was, we were listening to podcasts, my wife and I yesterday, and this, this pastor was giving his testimony, and he was talking about how he was this, this kid who was into drugs, he walked into this church, and somebody prayed for him, and then gave him a Bible, and sent him on his way, and he didn't think much of it, he goes home, and he starts reading the Bible, and this pastor that gave him the Bible told him to read Romans, and this guy's like, you don't tell people to read Romans when they don't know anything about the Bible, like, you're just going to lose them, right? But he did. He read Romans, confusing, confusing, confusing. And then he gets to chapter 8, verse 1, and it says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And bam, he realized, he recognized that he needed forgiveness. He just read the Bible. This is how people have been getting saved for thousands of years. It's really, really supernatural. Listen to what Hebrews says. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I can't do that. How do you even do that? Like, let me get through the joints and the marrow. Like, the word of God just pierces into just the right place. That's why we just got to hold it forth. We just got to proclaim it. Not use it as a baseball bat, but it's the good news. You just need to preach it. Scripture not only has the power to save, it also has the power to anchor us, to hold us fast when what we think may disagree. The second activating force, the activating catalyst that I think changed these guys is this. It's the activating power of the atonement. The activating power of the atonement. Look again at verse 26. Now, Jesus makes it very clear that it was necessary, verse 26, was it not necessary that Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus needs these guys to understand something because they're completely confused. They think that all is lost because their Messiah, or who they thought was the Messiah, is dead. 
And he needs them to understand something. He needs them to understand the atonement. So he takes them to the scriptures and reminds them of this. Now, it's kind of interesting to me because Jesus told his guys in his three years of ministry, he told them and he told them and he told them, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer. And they just completely missed it. And now he's going to tell them again. But this time he goes all the way through the scriptures in order to tell them this. Now, he doesn't go through the scriptures and just show them everything about Messiah. That would take too long. He goes through and he shows them everything in the Old Testament about the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah, the Messiah that must die. Now, I can't just help but wonder, I can't help but wonder, what did Jesus tell them? Like, what texts did he take them to? Can you imagine? Like, Jesus is just like starting in Genesis and walking them through I mean, I wonder if he didn't maybe take them to Genesis and say, hey, you know, remember Adam and Eve? You remember after sin in the fall, they realized that they were naked, they realized something was wrong, and what was the first thing they do? They kill an animal, and they put the skins over him. And he might say, don't you think that there's a reason behind that? There has to be death to be covering. And then maybe he took them to the story about um, Cain and Abel, Two sacrifices. Cain brought one. Abel brought one. Cain's was the, the fruit of his works in the ground, and Abel's was blood. Sacrifice the lamb. God accepts the blood sacrifice and does not accept the one from the ground. Maybe Jesus brought them to the drowning of the earth in judgment in Noah's ark and said, hey, isn't it interesting that God's wrath had to be poured out on this terrible, terribly wicked earth? but yet some were rescued. Maybe he took them to the story of Isaac and Abraham when Abraham uh, marched up the mountain with Isaac and was about to sacrifice him in obedience and God says, no, 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 don't do it. Here's what God doesn't say. He doesn't say, there's no need for a sacrifice. Doesn't say that, does he? He says, I will provide the sacrifice. Or in King James, I will provide myself a sacrifice. It's not that there was no need for one is that there was one coming that would atone for Isaac and for Abraham, a future atonement. Maybe Jesus took them to Exodus and the Passover lamb and, and, and reminded them of the story that they knew so well that they just got done celebrating a week prior where a lamb had to be sl- uh, slain for every household and blood had to be put on the door in order to, to make atonement. So there'd be a covering when the death angel passed by. Maybe he took them to the Levitical system and showed them and reminded them of all of the blood that had to be shed every morning, every night, every evening, constantly, day after day. The priests would get up and put on their white robes and instantly blood would cover it and they would make sacrifices and then the next day they'd get up and do it again because there was never enough blood. Maybe he reminded them of the restricted access of the tabernacle that there was something keeping them out of the presence of God. They couldn't go in there because something needed to change. I wonder if he took them to those. I wonder if he took them to Leviticus 17, verse 11, and reminded them of this verse, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. These guys that were so confused why the servant, why the Messiah had to suffer, Jesus reminds them, isn't it the whole Old Testament about a need for atonement? That something has come between God and man? There is a disconnect? And then perhaps he reminded them that he was the one who was prophesied to crush 
that this Christ was the one to come and crush the head of the snake. Maybe he reminded them that the Christ was the skins that Adam and Eve wore. Maybe he reminded them that, that Christ was the fulfillment of Abel's sacrifice. Maybe he reminded them that, that the Christ was the one that would be provided for the sacrifice of Isaac. Can you imagine that sermon? Can you imagine hearing that? It would be incredible. It's said in Hebrews, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Hebrews 10, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, Death after death after death, blood after blood after blood, it was never enough. There is not enough lambs in all of the creation or all of eternity to satisfy the need for God's perfect wrath and justice poured out on the sins of this world. But the author of Hebrews goes in verse 10 and says, by, and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, listen, once for all. Once for all. One lamb. Was it any mistake that Jesus was sacrificed as there was a river of blood coming from the Passover lambs that could not atone for you and me? Jesus was the Passover lamb. He was the Passover lamb. He reminded them in John 5, he reminded the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The point of Jesus' sermon to these guys is that all of the Old Testament is about me, he would say. And it's about my satisfaction with my blood to atone for your sins. It's remarkable. This activated something in these men. Not only did the scriptures activate something, but this, this reality that Jesus was the atoning sacrifice, it activated something in them. And they were never the same. The third thing that is activated in this is the power of the resurrection. Not only are these guys changed because of the scriptures and because of, of, of the, the fulfillment of the atonement in Christ, but they're also changed by the power of the resurrection. Like I said already, these guys understand that if their Messiah is dead, he's no good to them. If he's dead, he's not the Messiah. But the good news is, is he's not. <laughs> he's standing right before him. Let me ask you guys, what would happen if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? You ever thought about that? And we talk about the resurrection all the time as Christians, it's really important. Why is, it, why is it important? What if it wasn't there? What if it didn't happen? Paul actually answers that question. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Why don't you flip over there real quick? 1 Corinthians 15, 12. He answers that exact question. Paul writing to an audience that was influenced by something called Platonic thought. Plato told the Greek world and told the ancient world that spiritual was good and physical was evil and resurrection was a terrible thing. Paul's writing to these people and picking it up in verse 20. I'm pardon me, verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. Those are strong words. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, listen, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Why is it futile? Because faith that is not in a substance is nothing. You can have good faith feelings all the way to hell. Your faith has to be in something. If you are straddling a cliff and you say, I am just anchored in with faith, you will fall to your death. (laughs) At the end of the day, you have to tether yourself to a reality. And Paul is saying, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We, above all, are to be pitied. We wasted our life. We, as Christians, bank all of our life on the resurrection. Because the resurrection proves that Jesus was who he said that he was. It proves that he can do what he said that he would do. And right now, maybe when things are going good in your life, maybe that doesn't feel like a big deal. But when things start getting hard, you want to know that Jesus can deliver on what he said he would do. And the resurrection proves that he has the power to overcome not only sin, but death. Because he did it. Because he's not in the grave. Because he's not on the earth. He's in heaven. On the throne. In the midst of his churches, Revelation tells us. Fighting for you. Fighting for me. This is good news. The resurrection is extremely important, not only because it means that Jesus was who he said he was, but for another reason. Now, let me just say, no, don't let me lose you here, okay? This is really interesting, actually. In Leviticus 23, there's this really interesting uh, thing called the, 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 the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits. And basically, you had the Sabbath week, and then the first day of the next week, which would have been Resurrection Sunday, they would celebrate a smaller, less kind of boisterous feast called the Feast of First Fruits. And what they would do, because it was spring and things were starting to bud and, and fruit was starting to come, they would go and they would bring in the sheaves of these first fruits and they would give the Lord his first fruit sacrifice and they would examine that fruit. And the, the, the level that that fruit was good was a sign of what the harvest was going to look like in 50 days at Pentecost. Isn't that cool? Okay. So really good sheaves at first fruits, you know the harvest is going to be good. Now, Paul knows that, and he says, continue reading in First, or, uh, first Corinthians 15, look at verse 20. In regards to the resurrection, hold all that in your head. I know it's a lot, but just hold on to it. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the what? Say it, the what? He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. This is so cool. Because what this means is that Jesus in his resurrection was a symbol of what you and I will do as well. That the harvest to come is going to be bountiful because Jesus' resurrection was so fruitful. He was the first to be resurrected and we will follow in his footsteps. Now, just a side note. 
50 days after first fruits was another feast. It was called the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, which just so happened to be the feast to celebrate the harvest. How incredible is it that Jesus, the first fruits, was resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits, and 50 days later, thousands of people came to Christ through the gospel because the Holy Spirit was poured out at the Feast of Pentecost. Is that any accident? I think not. I think not. The resurrection matters because it is the sign of the quality and the magnitude of the crop to come. Because he lives, we will live too. Because he has conquered death, we will conquer death too. Because he has ascended to the Father, we will ascend to the Father too. I love how Hebrews says 12, 1 and 2, it says Jesus is the founder and perfecter, not of our faith, that's poorly translated. He is the author and perfecter of faith. He was the first one to run the race perfectly, and because he ran his race perfectly, we follow in his footsteps. This is why the resurrection matters. Because it's not enough to just have your sins forgiven. That's dealing with your past. What about your future? Jesus in the gospel is not just dealing with your past, it's dealing with your present, and it's dealing with your future. I am forgiven, and I have a future and a hope because Christ was resurrected, because Christ conquered death. I will conquer death too. I will fall in his footsteps. He is the champion of faith. He's the author of my salvation. Isn't that exciting? Anybody excited about that? Okay, just want to make sure. This is why Jesus said, Mary, don't cling to me. She's holding on to him at the tomb, and he says, don't cling to me, woman. I got to go. I got to ascend. I have work to do. And then we see him in Revelation. We see him in glory, not distant from his church, but we see him in the midst of the candlesticks. See him in the midst of the churches. Jesus ascended and powerful, making sure that his churches are cared for. And then lastly, not only was it the activating power of the scriptures, of the atonement, of the resurrection, but lastly and very importantly, the activating power of relationship. The activating power of relationship. There was something else here. I don't want you to miss this. There was something else that changed these guys. Jesus, when he was resurrected, he, he found really interesting ways to let everybody know it was him. You ever notice that? He's this very endearing way of doing it. With Mary, okay, she's, she's at the tomb. She's She's weeping, she's upset. Where is my Lord? Where did they do with his body? And Jesus, again, kind of like this story, he, he's withholding her from seeing who he is. She thinks he's the gardener. Now there's a moment where she realizes who he is. There's a moment where the lights come on. You know what that moment is? It's when he speaks her name in that familiar way that she had known and heard so many times before. Mary, it's me. And she goes, my Lord. He wanted Mary not to see him as now the divine, you know, so distant up in heaven that there's no more relationship. Jesus came in and created relationship with Mary and that relationship carried through into the new covenant. In fact, that was the point of the new covenant. He wanted relationship. He was the same Jesus that she loved and served. He conquered death. He conquered sin. It was her Lord. Jesus on the shore. This is so playful. I love it. Jesus on the shore. He sees Peter. Peter doesn't know who he is. 
doesn't know Jesus has been resurrected. And he calls out to Peter this inside joke that they had, you know, hey, how's the fishing? And instantly Peter jumps overboard. My Lord. He recognized and remembered the relationship that they had had. And that's no different in this text. Look at it, verse 30. Back in Luke now. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them just like he would have done so many times before. How many meals did they have with Jesus? How many times did they sit and have a meal? And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They told what had happened on the road and, now, and how he was known to them in what? In the breaking of the bread. It was in this relationship. Jesus wanted them to be anchored not only in the power of the resurrection, power of the cross, the power of the scriptures, but the fact that this was the Jesus that they knew personally. It wasn't just that he was God, it was that he was also their friend. Like he says in the book of John, you're not my servants, you're my friends, because I tell you what I do. Now make no mistake, he's their king. He's their God, he's their Lord, but he's also their friend. There is an activating power when you realize that Jesus longs to have relationship with you. That was really one of the main things that brought me to Christ, man. I just, I was, he was just such a distant, angry deity for so long. And when he called my name, I realized that he wanted to be not only my God, but also my friend. That he, he wanted to just, he just wanted to have a relationship with me. He wanted me to trust him, to bring my stuff to him. There's an anchoring in that. Hebrews 6.19 is one of the coolest verses. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I like that. Anchor of the soul. What is it? A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. It's talking about Christ. He's our anchor because he went into the place of relationship, the place where before the cross we couldn't go. And that anchors us to him. I can't tell you how many times I have um, strayed away from the Lord or ignored the Lord for seasons. And you know what brings me back? I miss him. You ever have that? You're just running from God. You're, you're hiding from him. You're distracted. You're, you're filling your life with everything you could possibly fill. Just, the TV's on so much. Everything else is on. And you hit this point where you just realize the world is so unsatisfying and you remember, I miss the Lord. I just miss him. That is the new covenant. It's the new covenant. We have a relationship. Our anchor goes behind the veil. That's really cool. I had that experience with my wife. We just got away for a few days, and I just, it's not that I ever forgot, you know, but you just are reminded me. I just like her so much. I just like her so much. And I just, whenever I pray, whenever I'm with the Lord, I just think, man, I just like you, Lord. You're just good. He's good. What was it on the road to Emmaus? What was the Emmaus moment for these guys? It wasn't just faith in faith. It was faith in their Lord substance of the cross and the resurrection and the fact that the scriptures had foretold this and that this was their Lord. They knew him. They walked with him. They talked with him. They put their hands in the holes. He was a reality to them. He was such a reality to them that he affected a world-changing thing called the church because they believed it. It was real. 
It was a real thing. I would invite you guys to press into these realities. And I believe to the degree that you press into these realities is the degree that you will have an Emmaus Road moment in your life and hopefully many to come. Because I don't know about you, I just feel like these guys so often. I'm just floundering, I'm down, I don't know what's going on, and Jesus comes to me like he did these guys. He comes into their walk, he steps into their stuff, and he patiently and kindly reminds them of who he is and what the scriptures say, and they walk out of there ready and on fire to go share the gospel. Isn't that cool? Let's stand together, guys. Lord Jesus, you are our God. You are our Lord. And I'm just so thankful that you're someone that not only I can know about, but I can know. That you're not just theological realities, Lord, that you are a person. And that you made us in your image. And Lord, I just thank you, Jesus, for, for how you loved your disciples. You didn't just leave them scattered. You didn't just leave them confused. You came and you, you got your sheep. You sought them out. You threw them on your shoulder. You taught them the scriptures. Lord, you patiently bared with even Thomas's lack of doubt. And even he exclaimed, my Lord, my God. So we just say that this morning. We say, my Lord, my God. Bear us up. Throw us on your shoulders. We are weak. We have very little faith, Lord. But I'm so glad that our faith is in a substance, in a person who can save because you've conquered sin and you've conquered death. You are saving us, you have saved us, and you will save us. Lord Jesus, we love you. In your name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a good one. Castles that crumble like sand